If it's not broke, don't fix it. Hi, I'm Jovelin of Jovelin's Bistro Cover to Cover, and welcome to the next 28 minutes where I hope to entertain you in a way that stimulates your mind. And I'm not going to do that alone, though. I have a, a very wonderful woman. First of all, let me just say before I get into this wonderful woman, happy birthday, Jack. What a wonderful show. I always have the opportunity to come in the studio and listen to him uh, do his thing, and it's always so wonderful. He is my teacher. My mentor, my teacher, and I hope that he doesn't mind that I signed up for that. He just blew me a kiss, so he said, okay. That's <laughs> 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 excellent. Thank you. In the studio today, I also have a fan of Jack's, uh, Diane Jeanette, who is also a friend of Judy Grand's, who is a poet who Jack knows. Diane is a good friend of mine, and I've invited her for the next 28, 27 minutes to spend with me, with you, my listeners. And the reason I invited her is because there's something that she has been working on that I think is important to all of us that deals with transformation, that deals with change. And Diane years ago was a businesswoman. So this is a journey she's going to take us through through her recent writings of a time in her life when she made big changes. Years ago, she was a businesswoman. And things began to happen to her readings of other women that so inspired her, inspired her that it took her on a journey. She became obsessed with that journey, did have no clue where it was taking her. But she did what we are always in pop culture saying that we should trust. That's the new thing. We should trust, trust ourselves. But that to actually hear someone talk about that journey, what that felt like to trust themselves and her journey took her all the way to India and to leave a world of business, of security, and all the things that come with that, and to trust herself. And she's going to read some of her writings as she reflects back on that time. Things that didn't make sense will make sense, that makes sense to her now. She's uncovering that. So, welcome, Diane. Thank you, Joblin. It's so great to be here with you. Absolutely. Welcome to Joblin's Bistro. Yeah. Bistro. So now the name of your, the name in progress that you, or your writings yeah. uh, is called the, the Nagas. The Nagas Speak. And what is that? What is the Nagas? The Nagas are the uh, deified earth spirits that are in the form of cobras in uh, South India, actually all over the South, uh, Southeast Asia. And um, they had a very particular um, role in my transformation. They came to me in many, many ways. Um, and through the years of teaching women, uh, particularly in women's spirituality, I've seen similar things happen to other women. Um, so this is a, a time in my life when I was... Um, Looking back on it, it was a, a really important transformational time. Um, and it's so interesting, you and I were talking about this, to look back at a time in your life where you didn't know what was happening. And now I'm sort of trying to write from a place that actually has some perspective on it. So I can fill in the blanks and say things and actually discover new things about myself and 
to try and answer the question that I always have, how is it we transform successfully from one place to another? I think that's really important for us to look at today. Also, too, uh, it, it is important to note that you were with a core group of women who created the Women in Spirituality uh, uh, Master's Program, one of the first in the country, uh, and that was at New College. Mm-hmm. And then you left New College and moved the program over to Sophia University. So the Women in Spirituality, at the very bottom of that, you were asking women who were in the midst of right. transformation to trust the program because no one knew right. what the heck to do right. with a master's degree in women right. and spirituality. Right. And so this is the journey that you had to take even prior. That's right. So this is actually the story of my journey, which then led for to me holding the container for other women to make that same kind of journey. And they were in kind of the same place I am, which is, you know, you know that something is working. You know that something is trying to change and to emerge. But you really, most of the women who showed up in our MA program honestly had no idea why they were there. You know, we all made up a story about why we were there, but it, it revealed itself in the process. And so that's kind of what I'm doing in, in this memoir, uh, working in a group um, with other writers, actually, and, um, you know, just doing an exploration of, like, what was that about? <laughs> what was that about? What was that about in my life? So first, tell us um, a little bit about business. What was it like for you when you say you worked in the business world? What was that? Oh, uh, well, I'd had about um, a 20-year career as um, what we now call high-tech, but it was not really called that then. But it was selling the the leading-edge technology to large corporations, and I was sales and then sales manager and then vice president of you know a software company. So my whole identity had been about um, doing equity feminism um, of you know being a, a accomplished woman in the world um, doing things that women hadn't traditionally done and I was um, I loved it actually I loved it the whole time I did it and I was also a mom so I was a first a, a, a working mother and then a single mother because I had a divorce um, so there were there were many many components to this and this all the story takes place at the time that my daughter has just left for um, college, and um, that is a big change in my identity. So I've left the corporate world, all the things that I've loved and that have held me together and have given me um, a sense of agency and self-authority and competence and (laughs) financial um, success and all the things that our culture says that we should have. And there was something there there was something more there was something else i wanted um and so i uh i resisted it for quite a while and then um i've been reading uh works in women's spirituality by Starhawk and Vicki Noble and um, Eleanor Gaden and some of the people, Charlene Spretnak. So I was a feminist and my spirituality was coming out. So I was looking at um, this combination of feminism, but also what is the spiritual component to that and what is the political and activist component? Because those were the things I was caring about is, all right, I've done this other thing, but what can I do that has the potential of really changing things? Okay. And so 
these are some of the reflections you're going to read to us to take us on that journey. Okay, take us away with something <laughs> from so, the writer. I know writer, writers shouldn't do this, but I just have to say this is um, this is the first time I've read this. <laughs> okay, and tell us. And so, uh, is there anything you want to do to set us up, to put us in the, to drop us inside of it? Um, well, it takes it takes place in 1995, uh, and it's based on um, my own uh, journals. I took really um, incredible sort of notes and uh, audio taped myself, and uh, even have a lot of videotape from the time. And I was at the California Institute of Integral Studies in a uh, in the first year of a, a PhD program, and um, I wanted to go to Kerala to um, see if this research project I had in mind was viable. And I'll explain a little bit more about what that was Okay, in the writing. But I start out here with something that actually was revealed to me in the journals, which I didn't know, didn't, hadn't consciously thought about. And that was not only was my identity changing, but it was also wrapped up in the identity of my daughter and um and my relationship with my mother so i'm always concerned with um what are the the events in our lives that really um influence us that that propel us forward that are both our strengths and our weaknesses and um as i said you don't see that necessarily at the time but i can sure see it clearly now and you have the sensibility to record and document this i did I did. <laughs> yeah. That's very encouraging <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of people who have these hunches, feelings, suspicions, yeah. ex- whatever they want to call right. them, right. to have the courage to write them down and record themselves what, and document that for others in yes. front of us that may be in behind us. Is behind us, the yes. Absolutely. And, and for my daughter, even. Um, okay. Yeah, I think that's that's so important because um, it's not something that I do routinely. So this was also a very extraordinary period of time in my life that I that I had a sense that it was so important that I actually took the time and the effort to do it. Um, and I'm really grateful. Absolutely. So let's hear a reflection of that time. Okay, so here's a little bit of this. As I watched my daughter climb up the steep metal ramp and disappear into the airplane, I was filled with sadness. We had had such a very brief time together in India, just two days alone, and she was going back to a new life. A life as a lesbian, and I knew that she did not want that to fully share that life with me. Her identity was changing in a profound way, which was separating us. My identity was changing, too, from the hard-charging, successful, high-tech businesswoman and mother to what? A 48-year-old graduate student, I was in a Ph.D. program in women's spirituality and on some inner path of guidance, which I was tentatively calling Following Snake. This had led me back to the state of Kerala in South India for the third time. As the taxi rattled down the bumpy roads on the way back to Kovalam Beach, I reflected on how much I loved her and how little we knew of each other. As an 18-year-old, she deserved to have her secrets as she worked out who she was, and she was in territory foreign to me. I had my own secrets, and as I raised her, I had worried about how much to disclose. If I told her too much about my life with my mother, it might be a burden on her. But she could never understand me or our own relationship without knowing about 
what my life was like with a mentally ill mother and the toll that this had taken on both of us. The taxi pulled into the driveway of the hotel, perched high on the rocks over the Arabian Sea. I had moved into a spacious corner room with louvered windows and a balcony so close to the sea that I could feel the spray of the ocean crashing on the rocks below. I felt totally, absolutely lost, adrift. I had come to do something, but I didn't know what. As the sun set behind the lighthouse, I lay down on my stomach on the bed with the worn, soft sheets. The most intense grief I had ever experienced washed over me. The aloneness wasn't just from being in a strange place with no friends or family. It was also an awareness of the deep loneliness inside, the empty heart, the place I tried to fill up with activities and accomplishments and plans. I began crying, feeling I would never stop, that the hole was too deep, that I would disappear. My body would not be able to sustain this level of pain. Another part of myself energetically pulled in the touch of Linda, a body worker whom I trusted, who had worked with me for years in California. I could actually feel her hands on my back, and I completely let go. This is where we take a breath. <laughs> that is really an emotional, tender piece of emotional history. And I, I want to appreciate the writing, the honesty, and the openness of the writing. So now here you are, lying on the bed. And for our listeners, uh, you're listening to D Diane Jeanette. She is in the studio with me here at KPFA, reading some of her journals from years ago that she carefully documented of her life for the importance of being able to share that with, with in this moment, with everyone listening, but more on a personal journey for her daughter and to make sense of her life that didn't make sense then. And now that she's going back to write it, about it to make sense, or to at least understand it, to accept it. And more than that, in, or parallel to that, wanting all of us to understand her original question, what was transformation? What were the characteristics of it? How do you handle transformation? And I think that's a journey, a recipe that she's sharing with us now. And so I think it's time to breathe inside that appreciation since we all consider that transformation in our lives. So now, Diane, what was your dissertation about that took you on this journey? Well, um, my eventual, the, the reason I went to Kerala in the first place was um, really a, a practical one, believe it or not. Um, I, I was really in deep grief and despair about the state of the world, about what was happening to women and children, um, about the ecology and all those things. Um, and um, part of... Um, of what I was experiencing um, was something that I think is so important to transformation, which is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Joanna Macy's grief and despair work, but I think we spend so much of our time um, pretending like everything is okay, um, armoring ourselves, <laughs> you know, from everything that's actually happening and what we're really feeling, that we just get dead. And so this was a time in my life when I actually let that grief all the way through. And this is part of what this description 
is. Um, and what arose out of that was actually hope. Um, and Kerala, had, um, especially in those days, was really being studied by people from all over the world because it had what uh, the development people call a high quality of life with low resource use. Um, but it really was a, a, an anomaly. Um, it, men and women were educated at the same rate um, and were 100% literate. Um, uh, female fetuses were not selectively aborted. Um, people lived as long and as in as good a health in um, Kerala, which had one seventieth the per capita income, as they would in the so-called developed world. So. This was, for me, uh, sort of a model of success. The three religions, uh, Hinduism, Christianity, and Islam, people did ritual together and they got along. Um, So those were the qualities that I was really looking for. Those were the issues that I cared about. And my question was, what do these people believe and if I believed that if I knew these stories if I could experience that if I understood this culture what might change in me okay okay and so now you're there inside of that you're you're motivated by women and children the stories in their lives on a global level you find this place that seems to have found answers of how to connect organically it sounds like and you start your process. How long were you there? On on this trip, I was there for um, three months. What happened? So you go there, you're lying on the bed, you're full <laughs> of grief, your daughter's left, she has her secrets, you have your secrets. Tell us a little bit about what happened at your, after you rose up off that bed. Oh, well, that was interesting. Um, can I read just a little bit of it? Absolutely. <laughs> um, Let's see. It's uh, one paper dropped. Okay, it's fine. So the next morning, I woke to the call to prayer from the green mosque, which sat on a spit of land jutting out into the sea. The arabesque minaret of the mosque was silhouetted against the rising sun. In the distance, I could see the fishermen launching solid wooden fishing boats into the ocean. Their dark chests contrasted with their white skirt-like lungies. The scene seemed surreal, one which must have been replayed each morning for hundreds or thousands of years. Now I felt drained, but at peace, held by the ocean, the rocks, the sand, and the sun. Everything seemed new and sparkling and ancient at the same time, renewing my hope that Carola might hold the answers to my concern. So, um, what happened was... Um, I, this, this was my process. I would go through these deep layers of grief and despair. I came back and I actually, um, did ritual. Um, I was doing a lot of art. I was doing a lot of praying. Um, when people, when I say I go to India, people often think that I'm going to an ashram and so forth. That's not, that is actually hasn't been my, my, um, my journey. Um, I always felt like I was being led, and as long as I was trying to control it, nothing happened. So (laughs) I went to um, the Center for Development Studies, and I tried to to do normal research, and I tried to find a Malayalam teacher, and I tried to do the library and all this stuff, and 
nothing happened. I mean, absolutely nothing worked Javelin. And it wasn't until I gave it up when I just said, all right, I, I give up. And I really let, um, um, you know, what I call the goddess work in my life. And all of a sudden, magic started to happen. Some, <laughs> some, Somebody uh, actually... A friend of mine or acquaintance of mine uh, asked me to uh, give uh, an a, um, interview um, for a, a paper. And I said, no, no, I don't, you know, because I, I really was so unclear as to why I was there. And when I was looking at the Nagas, as I said, are the, the um, sort of the oldest earth-based religion. So through looking at that as a researcher, um, I was hoping to find some of the values and so forth. But there was also something else happening. I, I wanted to be in relationship to the sacred in a different way. And so I gave this this interview, and um, the <laughs> the paper said, um, "Snake cult seduces Diane." That was the headline. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here I am, you know, my my hold on academia was so tenuous anyway. <laughs> I was so humiliated, and through that. Three different people contacted me because it said where I was going to be staying. And I was invited to some of the most amazing rituals that I have ever experienced in all my years. I mean, just miraculous things started happening. Um, For some of us who may not be familiar with rituals, tell us what ritual Okay, well, these, this this kind of ritual is these are and these are the rituals that I ended up doing my dissertation on. They're community-based rituals. Um, they take place um, in the sacred groves because that was very much a part of the traditional of Kerala. Um, because of the caste system, um, the um, only the so-called high caste Hindus could go into temples, and everyone else um, were doing their. Uh, rituals um, out in the open in these um, in these sacred groves called kavas, and um, usually the um, it was around a goddess that was understood to be the protectress of the place where these people lived, um, and um, all the communities participated together. So um, there is almost always a story that's told. Um, about what happened there, how the goddess um, intervened. She's always the goddess of justice. So it's very much about, and the stories, almost all the stories are about being equal before the goddess, um, that the goddess, um, if the uh, the forces, the dominant forces, which are usually male forces, um, get too much power, she comes in and she sets the world right. So she defeats the demons and and brings um, balance back into harmony. Everybody back into harmony. So those, but these these rituals sometimes go on for. There are festivals that go on for maybe, um, you know, some of them nine days, ten days, um, and there's. 
honestly, Jocelyn, you would love these. <laughs> they are so um, creative. They're they're dancers. There are people embodying animals. Um, there are you know there's uh, I hate to use the word possession because it has such a negative connotation. Western but, culture. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. But it's 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 the the spirit comes in and is embodied in these um, people in the community that are also become the ritual specialists for reenacting the story for there's drummers there's um people who walk on fire there's um mostly they happen in the middle of the night um it's just <clears throat> it's beautiful and there's um feasting that happens um and in this in the ritual that i ended up uh doing my work on which was and that's even a ridiculous um <laughs> phrase doing my work on. I mean, I have become a devotee. Um, over a million women come and cook porridge together in one of these uh, these rituals. So um, it's and then they distribute the food to the whole community uh, on behalf of the prosperity and happiness and well-being uh, of everybody. So it's it's very very communal and um, these rituals knit people together. And I've just been fascinated with them but i was take i would have never found it if i hadn't have had if i hadn't given up <laughs> if you hadn't given up so letting go yeah it was totally a part go. of transformation is letting go and trying to control so that's part of the recipe letting go and, and stop trying to control now in the last few minutes of our of yeah, <laughs> quickly it goes, yeah could you read a, something you're writing that would reflect a part of where we can actually sense the transformation. We've experienced mm. you saying goodbye to your daughter. You're lying in the bed. You're grieving. You wake up the next day and you eloquently describe the the waters, the rocks, and the men. Where where else? Give us another excerpt of the, your wonderful writing and sharing mm. of this recipe. And if there's not that particular <laughs> question answered, just continue yeah. on with your writing. Yeah. No. Where did you stop off at? Uh, okay. Well, so. Um, I'll just talk about uh, kind of like the context. Um, this was my third trip. Let's see. Yeah, this was my third trip. I'd been here, first been here in 1987 when my husband included Kerala on our whirlwind tour of India and Nepal. On the Indian Airlines flight from the mountains of Nepal to the southern tip of the Indian subcontinent, I reached forward, pulled the airline magazine out of its pocket, and began reading an article entitled Where Women Reign, which described a matrilineal society that until recently had lived communally in Theravads or ancestral compounds in India. My heart raced and my eyes teared up as I read the final paragraph. The demands of modern society are no, long, no longer conducive to the smooth functioning of the Taravad, and it is indeed sad that the system is slowly fading out. However, what perhaps is reassuring is that the mental traditions of this social order lives on, where women are respected, never taken for granted, never downtrodden, and never ignored. I had no idea that this was the creation of an awakening in my heart, which would return me here six years later. Beautiful. And what, here's a question as we end our time together, Diane. You went, you started this research internally with the unhappiness of the plight of women and children, and you left to find that. 
What do you think now, 2015? What do you think about the spiritual, physical lives of women and children here in the United States, globally? Has anything shifted? Oh, you know, I, uh, it's a big question. (laughs) Um, as a, as a woman who, you know, grew up in the sixties, um, I think like so many people in my generation, I'm just astonished that in so many ways we seem like we're back with the same issues that we had then. Um, and, um, I was thinking of what, um, Hillary Clinton has been talking about. Yes. What, what did you specifically say? <laughs> well, she's been saying that, you know, we can't change people's hearts. We can only do policy or we should only do policy. And I'm, I think we should do both. And I think it's really our responsibility to do that kind of work um, so that we can change. Policy with heart. Diane, thank you for sharing your work and your hindsight and reflecting back on your journals and and having a good sensibility to tape, record, a time of your life to give us as an offering, as a gift. You for listening to Javelin's Bistro. My guest today, Diane Jeanette. Is there a website they can go to? Uh, no, actually. No, actually. So no, actually, join policy with your heart. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. I'll see you again at Javelin's Bistro. Bye-bye. Bill Maher says Richard Dawkins always writes like he's telling you a story, which is why so many of us non-science people understand science better. But when the story is his own life, it's doubly compelling. Richard Dawkins, author of The Selfish Gene and that resounding smash, The God Delusion, will present his autobiography, Brief Candle in the Dark, on Tuesday, October 6th at King Middle School in Berkeley. There's free parking and wheelchair access at this KPFA benefit, which begins at 7.30. Brian Edward Stiekert will host. Tickets available at brownpapertickets.com and supportive bookstores. More info on kpfa.org for that audacious intellectual luminary, Richard Dawkins, October 6th. And you are listening.